Hello again, everyone, and welcome to Treks in Sci-Fi. This will be podcast number 92 for December 18th, 2006. Stand by. We're going to do a show about The Twilight Zone this week. Here we go. You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. A dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. Well, once again, I'd like to welcome everyone to Treks in Sci-Fi. This is your host, Rico, for your weekly dose of sci-fi and Star Trek information. This week, though, we're going to be doing something a little different. We're going to talk about the Twilight Zone. But before we get to that, got a few things to, to discuss before then. Uh, one, first thing I have to kind of mention is this show is about a day late going out. Uh, I got a pretty nasty case of the flu over the weekend. I'm still not 100%, but it's uh, it's time to do the podcast, and I just uh, got my Gatorade here to keep me going, and hopefully get through the show and get it out to everyone that's looking forward to uh, listening to uh, this special edition with uh, a look at Rod Serling's The Twilight Zone. So again, I just want to say sorry. Haven't uh, really done that very much at all. Uh, Missed uh, the podcast day of Sunday. So I apologize if everyone was looking for it and saying, hey, what happened to Rico out there? Uh, I'm uh, I'm still alive. Uh, Not 100%, but uh, we'll get through the show. On the uh, news front uh, going on, there there are some new uh, rumblings about the uh, next Star Trek film going uh, going on. One, uh, it's looking more likely that J.J. Abrams will direct it. It's also looking uh, likely they're going to try to get it out in 2008, uh, film it sometime next year. And I, I think this uh, idea of a uh, early prequel uh, story set with uh, the days of uh, a young Kirk and Spock is, is looking more and more likely, at least from the reports I've been seeing around the internet and everywhere so we'll keep everyone posted on that uh it uh you know there's uh it's gonna be a while or it's been a while when this does come out between star trek movies there's no series going on right now so uh, i think the the audience will be hungry when it does finally arrive but uh, we'll have to wait and see how this progresses the other news on the star trek front uh that's been going on this week is there are uh Rumors, uh, a little more than just rumors, I think, of a new Star Trek animated uh, cartoon series coming out. There are some uh, things out on the internet about this uh, series. There's some initial artwork. Uh, it looks uh, pretty interesting. No real uh, definitive information on when this might happen or the exact time frame in the Star Trek universe that it would take place in. But uh, I'll keep, again, everyone posted on, on the more I uh, learn about this. I'll, I'll let everyone know on the podcast if you go to the forums and that, there are some discussion threads there and some links to some information on the treksf.com forums. Take a look there uh, when you get a chance. Incoming transmission, Captain. Well, uh, I've got a few voicemails to get through uh, before we get to t- discussing the, the main topic, the Twilight Zone. So I'll start off with this one. This is a Scott uh, who's called in a few times to the podcast, and he has some comments on last week's podcast about the TNG episode Parallel. So listen to uh, Scott's comments. Hey Rico, this is Scott from the forum. And uh, after listening to your latest uh, show about the Next Generation episode uh, Parallels or whatever it was, see that was one of my favorite Next Generation episodes. 
But I always had a problem with the ending. Um, multiple universes does not say anything about time travel, and I always thought it was kind of bad because at the end of the episode, no one knows anything except for Worf. Uh, see, that makes sense if it was a time travel related episode, but multiple universes, pretty much when he sealed the, the fissure, he, everything should have gone back to their own universes, but that doesn't mean that they would have not known what happened. They should have known, and all that other stuff, and now I'm just kind of rambling on and on about it, so <laughs> you get the picture. I'll see you later. Hey, thanks for your message, Scott. Uh, yeah, I kind of agree with you. But for for some reason, I think the the people writing that show thought it would be more interesting if if Worf was the only one that remembered exactly what happened. Uh, I mean, you can create any kind of uh, sci-fi type element to explain your way around that situation about why only Worf knows what's going on and and nobody else does. You know, it's 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 a difficult thing to uh, resolve. But uh, I think I think the main reason actually they did it was just I think they thought it would be more more interesting if only Worf knew about it so that's probably my only explanation not a real scientific one but more of a story uh thing that they did I think okay next uh next up we've got another voicemail this is from uh somebody uh named Rick uh and a message to Rico uh and he's got some comments about the podcast in general so listen to Rick's comments hi Rico this is uh Rick how are you glad to have you back from uh Germany um, I was listening to your Sunday podcast, and I was intrigued by a voicemail from the other gentleman who said he'd listened to all of your old podcasts, and I have to say that I've been trying to do the same thing and was thoroughly enjoying your cast. I'm a Star Trek fan from a long, long way back. Uh, I used to run a Star Trek, Star, Trek camp, Star Trek fan club a long time ago in California, um, so... I just enjoy um, your take on the episodes. I really enjoy the feedback from everybody else in the forums. And I just want to uh, congratulate you on, you know, providing something for us Trek fans to look forward to on a weekly basis. I'm sorry I missed the uh, call-in last Sunday. And hopefully if you do one of those again, I'll be able to participate. So take care, welcome back, and uh, keep on. Bye. Thanks for your comments, Rick. I, I really appreciate it. Like I've said uh, several times in the past, it's always great to hear from other Star Trek fans, sci-fi fans out there that have enjoyed the podcast. Uh, you know, I'm just a fan like you guys are. I, I you know, decided uh, a long, well, not a long time ago, a year and a half or so ago, when I got interested in podcasts to, to do a, a Star Trek sci-fi one from uh you know, from the point of view of, of, of my interest in it and trying to uh, to bring that out to to other people out there to to make them realize that uh, the, these are uh, interesting shows. Maybe somebody who's not, you know, really, really into Star Trek, maybe give them a little, uh, you know, a little different take on it. Uh, you know, there, there's a lot of uh, good uh, messages in Star Trek. These aren't just sci-fi shows. And, and I think uh, I've gotten several emails and voicemails from people that have been more excited and wanted to check out these shows after I've discussed them. So uh, even if I get a few people out there to do that, I, I think it's uh, it makes me feel better about uh, the job that I'm doing and get a chance to uh, bring some more fans in. So uh, 
We've got another voicemail here. Uh, this one's from uh, Dan, who's a new member on the forums. He goes by the handle of Picard on the forums. He's got a, a nice voicemail, too, about the show in general. So here's Dan's comments. Hello, Rico. This is Dan from Plymouth, Massachusetts. I wanted to send you a message letting you know how much I'm enjoying the Trex and Sci-Fi podcast. I got an iPod a few months ago, and I've been going through all your shows. Sadly, I'm just about caught up, so now I've got to deal with having only one or sometimes two new Trex and Sci-Fi podcasts to listen to during the week. On the positive side, now that I'm caught up, I can offer some timely comments on your efforts. I just finished listening to last week's podcast, I think it's 91, where you offered commentary on seventh season next-gen episode Parallels. Uh, Rico, I appreciate when you go through the entire episode with it playing in the background. It, it definitely feels like a DVD director's commentary. Sometimes I haven't seen the episode in a while, and it brings back bits that I might have forgotten, and usually comment on them, and it's fun to rediscover bits of great Trek. I imagine this format's probably a little easier for you than putting together 10 of the best audio clips from each episode. However, I like the old format, too, so you can put me down for a vote to mix them up. As to this episode, I've always enjoyed Parallels, uh, though the final season wasn't one of my favorites. This episode, along with the finale, of course, was a bright spot. It's definitely like you described, uh, somewhat like Marvel's What If series or DC's Elseworlds. Seeing Worf and the next-gen crew in slightly altered realities was fun. Plus, this episode has one of my favorite lines when Worf says, Everyone was at my birthday party. I'm not sure why that one always cracks me up. I think it's because he just sounds like a four-year-old. Listening to the episode during your commentary, I came up with a little nit. Uh, in one reality, Worf has a, a trophy for coming in ninth place in the Batleth tournament. Does anyone really think Klingons give out trophies for ninth place? Uh, from what we've seen of Klingons, I'd be surprised if they gave out a trophy for second place. I'd be surprised if the loser's even allowed to live. Um, anyway, that's just a silly aside. This was a great episode, both of Next Gen and the Trex and Sci-Fi podcast. I had two ideas for the podcast. Uh, the first, uh, you've always mentioned that you're a comic book fan, and I'd be curious to hear what you think of the big things going on in comics, like Marvel's Civil War story and DC's 52. Also, it might be nice to get a weekly report on, on what was updated on the previous week's remastered Trek episodes. I watch these each week with great interest, and I'm sure many of your listeners would love to hear what you think about it, you know, what they're changing. That's about all I've got to offer right now, Rico. I appreciate all the effort you put into the show, and, and I hope you keep doing it for a long time. This is Dan in Plymouth, Pickard on the Trex and Sci-Fi Forum, signing off. Hey, Dan. Thanks uh, Thanks a lot for those comments. Uh, sorry about I, I called you Picard, I think, on the forums, not Pickard. Yeah, it's P-I-C-K-A-R-D. You kind of took a play on Picard, I think, there. I think we have somebody also, a Picard Delta care, uh uh, person on the forums, not to be confused with him. As far as your comments on uh, the last couple of things you mentioned there in, in terms of uh, comics and the remastered Trek episodes, uh, I'll just briefly say, yeah, I'm I'm a huge comic comics fan, primarily more Marvel. Although I, in a, in recent years, I've gotten more into DC. I, I am following both the Fifty Two storyline and the Marvel Civil War. For some reason, though, that the Civil War and Marvel is is more interesting to me. It's a little more; uh, they, those characters have always been more near and dear to my heart, uh, especially Spider Man. I think I've said that a couple times before. I should probably take it upon myself one week to do a uh, a comic book uh, podcast, tell you guys what I enjoy, what I've enjoyed over the years, maybe some uh, wishes for future comics, things like that. Uh, they are going to do another. It's, it's looking more and more like they're going to do a new Star Trek comic book series, a regular ongoing series, maybe starting next year. 
So we'll definitely be ta- talking about that on the podcast. The other thing you mentioned was the remastered Trek episodes. I have, I've had a couple ideas along those lines. The first was uh, what I was trying to do, I, I've tried to capture these and put them on my computer and capture little uh, still frames of the things they've changed, mostly special effects. And I, I've had some success doing that, but I haven't had a chance to really dig into it deeply. I have been watching uh, and trying to keep up with them. I haven't seen the two-part menagerie, which they put out just recently. I haven't seen that yet, and I do find myself kind of skipping ahead to where I know that there are certain effect shots that I think they might uh, change, so I don't necessarily watch the entire episode again. But they're doing a pretty good job with it. Uh, it, it, It's a little of an unusual idea, I think, and I I do think that it's also getting people more into Star Trek in general. Uh, I know my son has watched them with me occasionally, and I think there are other people out there that you know, with these updated effect shots that they will uh, they will find Star Trek a little more interesting now, perhaps. One thing that I, I've said before about them that annoys me a little bit is that they are making some small cuts out of the episode for time. Even with these added new effect shots, they're, they're cutting them uh, cutting them here and there, little bits of the episodes for time, which, which is very annoying, which is the way it used to be a long time ago in syndication. And, and after having the DVDs out now, it's probably even more uh, frustrating, but... I will try from time to time to to update on, on what's going on. I noticed this week, at least in the area where I live, they, they re-ran Balance of Terror, which was, I think, the first one that they released for these remastered Trek uh, shows, which they may be going into a, sort of a rerun, a slight rerun period, so maybe it'll give me a chance to get caught up more. So, hey, thanks, everyone, for your audio comments. If anyone else would like to audio comment uh, on anything about the show or things you might like to see done on the show or, or listen to, uh, you can always call the voicemail line. Uh, it's 206-88-TREX or send an audio comment via email, treksf at gmail.com. And just stand by. We are now about to get into my discussion on the classic uh, 60s series, The Twilight Zone. Hey, everyone. This is Scott Johnson from the Extra Life Radio Show. You're listening to Treks in Sci-Fi with my friend Rico. Okay, it's uh, it's been a long time coming, but it's it's definitely time to look at uh, Rod Serling's The Twilight Zone. Now, this uh, for this podcast on on The Twilight Zone, I'm going to focus primarily on the you know the original series, the five seasons that were done in the 1960s. I was uh, looking through an excellent book called The Twilight Zone Companion by Mark Scott Zacree, which can be purchased on Amazon and other sites uh, online, and this is a, a, a great companion to the twilight zone and there's a nice uh, initial section on on how the twilight zone came about and i i, I kind of skimmed through it and i've read it before but i wanted to give you a little bit of background now now as as everyone knows basically rod serling uh, created the twilight zone rod serling and the twilight zone go hand in hand this was uh, his show there were uh, uh, quite a few uh, science fiction writers and other writers that worked on the series, but Rod Rod Serling uh, or the Twilight Zone was Rod Serling's baby from the beginning. Now, I'll give you some background. Rod Serling is at least when you see him on the Twilight Zone, he he comes off a little as stiff and a little uh, uncomfortable. But in in real life, he was he was really not like that at all. He he was uh, a bit of a practical joker. 
He grew up in the New York area, was was very outgoing, uh, had some good friends that they read, read a lot of uh, old amazing stories and pulp magazines together, which sort of fueled his initial uh, interest in, in science fiction and fantasy type tales. Uh, you know, he, he was a... Uh, uh, a lot different than the persona that you see him as he introduces each episode of the Twilight Zone. The uh, one of the reasons was that is he was always kind of uncomfortable being on camera. He was originally they were going to try to get someone else to do those little segments at the beginning and the endings of the Twilight Zone, but they they really couldn't find anybody else that that they felt was going to do uh, do the job as well as Rod could do it. So. Rod Serling kind of reluctantly did those little bits, but he was never very very comfortable on camera. And as you can see, he was a he was a pretty heavy smoker, and he you know generally in most of those segments he'd have a cigarette in one hand to kind of try to calm his nerves as he did those scenes. So uh, even though he he looked uh, a little nervous and he he didn't really come off uh, very well sometimes, or at least his personality didn't come through. If you saw him in interviews or anything like that. He was quite a bit different than, than that character uh, doing those segments. Now, Rod, like uh, a lot of guys did, uh, had, had basically uh, enlisted in the Army. It was during around the time of World War II. He uh, was in the paratrooper area, and uh, you know he, he kind of served his country. And during that time, his father passed away. He was very close with his family. And when he was uh, overseas in the Philippines, his father passed away, and, and it really kind of... Uh, was a big blow to him when he got back uh, to to the states. Uh, shortly after that, he en- he enrolled in in college and uh, really was kind of as a lot of people do. I think when they're first in college, was kind of floundering about what he wanted to do with his life. Uh, but he he'd always been interested in sort of the dramatic arts, and he slowly moved towards in sort of an arts major, literature writing type uh, areas, English and that, which seemed to be his strong suit. He had written some uh, radio plays for. Uh, uh, for the Army, uh, you know, or excuse me, for the Armed Forces Radio Network when he was in the uh, Army. And it, it kind of got, the writing bug kind of bit him good then. And he he always enjoyed writing. And even though it was, in most of the interviews and articles you, you read about him, it was always a struggle. It never really came super easy to him. He was a kind of a, a bit of a perfectionist. And, and that really, I think, came through in his writing. Uh, I mean, the episodes in The Twilight Zone and other shows that he worked on were, were so well-written and so tight in, in the way they could uh, create a tale in such a short amount of time in a 24, 23 or 24-minute segment in a half-hour TV show that, that Rod was, uh, was a very gifted writer. Uh, and uh, it really, uh, you know, he definitely did what he was suited best for in life. Now, about the time that Rod got uh, you know out of college and he started writing some scripts and things like that, there were a lot of live television shows on at the time. Uh, one of them, uh, Playhouse 90, he wrote various scripts for, and he eventually created a script. Now, I'm going to get into a little bit on the, the, the initial stages of The Twilight Zone. He created a script uh, called The Time Element, and, and this was sort of an hour-long science fiction tale set around World War II. And it, it was not very well, though, received by the networks. He sent it off to CBS. They weren't really too excited by it. But it eventually made it on the air. Uh, it was made by uh, Desilu Studios, which was the uh, uh, Desi, you know, uh, Desilu Studios actually worked on Star Trek or was the uh, production company for Star Trek initially. You know, Desi Arnaz, uh, Lucio Ball's uh, production company, which uh, produced uh, the first uh, 
I guess sort of a, a, a pre-pilot for the Twilight Zone called the Time Element. This was uh, made for the 1958-59 television series, or 1958-59, uh, excuse me, television season. Now this, uh, even the, the network wasn't really too happy about this story, it, uh, it generated the most uh, viewer mail of, of basically anything they had put on up until that point. A lot of people really enjoyed it, a lot of people liked it, and a lot of people wanted to see more of this kind of a story. So Rod Serling uh, had basically put something out there on the networks or on, the, on television that people hadn't seen before and that people really loved. And it, uh, it convinced uh, CBS to create a, uh, a, a true pilot episode for the series that would become The Twilight Zone. Now, once Rod had the, the go-ahead to create a new script for uh, uh, a pilot episode of the, of the series called The Twilight Zone, he uh, originally wrote uh, a script called The Happy Place. Now, this basically dealt with a, a society of the future, and this is sort of a Logan's Run sort of tale in a way. Basically, it was a society in the future that once you became the age 60, you were sort of escorted off to a, uh, an area, a place that uh, they called the happy place, well, where everyone was basically uh, eliminated. They were, they were killed. And the network, uh, they didn't really think this was such a great idea for a pilot episode for a, for a fantasy anthology series like The Twilight Zone where you're showing the future as being a, a time where people, uh, when they hit the, hit the age of 60, are sort of escorted away and, and, and gotten rid of. Uh, there was a lot more to it than that, but they, they didn't decide to go with that script. Uh, so Rod wrote another story called Where Is Everybody? This uh, was eventually made into the first pilot, first episode uh, of the true Twilight Zone TV series. It starred Earl Holloman, and it was a very straightforward tale. A guy basically wakes up, in a, in a town, a small town, and the, the name of the title, Where Is Everybody?, is, is due to the fact that he's, he's frantically searching through this town trying to locate other people, but there's nobody there. It's, it's completely deserted. He keeps thinking he hears voices, and I won't say too much about the episode. I'm going to try not to, as I go through the Twilight Zone, give too many spoilers away. Uh, I know that a lot of these episodes have been on for years and years and years, and probably a lot of people listening to this podcast have seen most of these episodes before, but I don't want to give away, you know, the, the Twilight Zone was known for having sort of a, a slightly twist ending, uh, almost uh, like M. Night Shyamalan uh, does in his movies these days. The Twilight Zone was was is, has been very well known for that kind of a situation where in the last two or three minutes of the episode, a little twist or something would happen that would really shake things up. It didn't always follow that format. Some of them were a little more straightforward. Some of them, the the sort of weird twists and and things like that happened earlier in the episodes, but in general they had something. He, he Rod always liked to turn things sort of on, on their head. He liked to change things up. He liked to keep people guessing, and he liked to do the unexpected. and And that really shines through in in the five seasons of the nineteen sixties uh, Twilight Zone. You know, I think I think one of the things that's always uh, made me really enjoy the Twilight Zone so much over the years is that there are a lot of things that Star Trek and Gene Roddenberry did on Star Trek that are very much like the Twilight Zone. I mean, Gene Roddenberry on Trek, just like Rod did on the Twilight Zone, basically created a, uh, you know, a, a situation or a series which allowed them to, to, to discuss sort of current issues, 
sometimes uh, political things, sometimes things people didn't really want in their face on television, but they'd slide them in in these sort of fantasy science fiction ways that would make you think a little differently, and he would they would s- sort of sneak these things in on people. And because it was a fantasy sci-fi series, they were able to get away with it. Rod kind of uh, was also able to do that with The Twilight Zone. Now, the, the, the pilot episode, Where Is Everybody?, uh, decided or or made uh, CBS decide to to just dis- to go ahead with the series, which uh, and there's a there's a few other factors. One, there were besides Rod, there were several other people at the studio that were kind of pushing for the series. Rod had a lot of good reputation in Hollywood from his work on Playhouse ninety and other shows that that really made people respect him as a writer, as somebody who could deliver the goods uh, week to week and, and that kind of thing. So there was there was a he'll always say or always said when when he was alive that the reason the Twilight Zone decided or was was made into a TV series was, was a great deal of luck in a way and just people pushing for the show and Rod's uh, integrity as a writer uh, and he's um you know it's it's interesting I've uh, I looked at a few interviews with him and read a few things more in preparing for this podcast this week. Uh, you know, Rod Serling was an extremely confident, extremely intelligent guy, uh, but not at all arrogant. And, and a lot of people, uh, I think, respected that uh, about him. He was married to uh, a woman he met in college, Carolyn Serling, uh, who eventually becomes his wife, was his wife until the day he died. He he really was a, a very loyal uh, father and husband to her and and their children and i I think uh you know he was a bit of a rarity in hollywood uh and that i think really helped uh, people uh uh, take him seriously as a writer and uh, give him the uh the chance to do this uh little show called the twilight zone and right now i'm going to just take a short break uh get a little drink and i'll come back and we're going to talk about some of uh some specific episodes that i think are uh worth mentioning Grasshopper, you have learned much in your training. However, to achieve ultimate geekness, you must pass one final test. You must snatch this chip from my hand, Grasshopper. I wasn't looking. You must snatch this chip from my hand. Once again, you must snatch this chip from my hand. You must snatch this chip. Enough! Learn to be a true master. Visit geekfuactiongrip.com Now one of the great things about the Twilight Zone and that's that's fun to watch even to this day is how many uh, actors uh, that you get to see in, in the old Twilight Zones that were run for five seasons starting in 1959 to 1964. Uh, there are quite a few people uh, from Star Trek, uh, most uh, notably uh, William Shatner, starred in probably uh, one of the most classic uh, Twilight Zone tales, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. This was uh, w- was a great uh, bit of work by Rod and uh, William Shatner in this episode. Basically, there's a, a, a guy that's on an airplane ride who's just recently suffered a nervous breakdown, and he starts to see a, a strange little creature thing out on the wing of the airplane during flight. And if you can imagine, I've uh, 
you know, for people that have flown on airplanes a lot, and I've flown quite a bit recently uh, to different places, if you were uh, in a storm, you know, there's a, it's a sort of a stormy time in the uh, outside of the plane. That it's raining, lightning. That the plane's kind of buckling around. It, it's it's night. It's dark. And if you looked out on the wing of the plane and saw something out there, it would pretty much freak you out. And uh, I've got a little audio clip from that episode that I'm going to play for you now. Bob, is it the storm? Does it bother you? No. Honey, you remember what I told you before about seeing something outside? Yes. Julia, there's a man out there. I, I, I don't mean a man, I mean a... I don't know what I mean. I mean... Maybe a... What do they call him during the war? You know, the, the pilots... Gremlins. Gremlins. You remember the stories in the... Julia, don't look at me like that. Bob. I am not imagining it. I'm not imagining it. He's out there. Don't look. He's not there now. He... He jumps away whenever anyone might see him. me. Yeah, that's a, a great episode of the original Twilight Zone there, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. Uh, that's actually from the fifth season of the series, uh, in, um, and it also was written by um, Richard Matheson, uh, a really uh, a great, great writer and a great episode of the series. Now, the next clip I would like to play a little bit of for you is... For an episode from the, I'm going to jump around from season to season. I just kind of picked out a few episodes that I've always enjoyed. Uh, these are by no means the the tops or the best, but uh, I, I think this is a good sampling of different episodes from the Twilight Zone. The next one is called A Game of Pool. This was written by George Clayton Johnson. It was from the third season of the Twilight Zone, and it starred uh, Jonathan Winters and Jack Klugman. In uh, basically, the, the episode is. Uh, is set in a pool hall and they they play a game of pool together and it's it's a, a very unusual game of pool though and I think it's a it's a really good tale I I've always enjoyed playing pool myself so I I enjoyed this one a lot and Jack Klugman does a really good job in this episode so listen to this clip. My husband's good. I mean he was good, right? But he's dead. You hear me? He's dead. He's been dead for about fifteen years. And every time I turn around, I hear his name. Oh, you're pretty good, Jesse. But Fats is better. Fats is the best. I'll say it again. Fats Brown is dead and buried in the ground. And if he was alive and in this room, I could beat him. Yeah, as always uh, in in life and in the Twilight Zone especially, be careful kind of what you wish for because it uh, a lot of times can can come true. So that was a, a short clip there from A Game of Pool from the third season of The Twilight Zone. The next uh, clip, this um, I've got a few clips that I've, I'm going to play that are uh, that feature Rod's introductions to the, the particular episode. This next one is one of those uh, times. This one is from the Twilight Zone episode, Eye of the Beholder. Listen to this. 
Suspended in time and space for a moment, your introduction to Miss Janet Tyler, who lives in a very private world of darkness, a universe whose dimensions are the size, thickness, length of the swath of bandages that cover her face. In a moment, we'll go back into this room, and also in a moment, we'll look under those bandages, keeping in mind, of course, that we're not to be surprised by what we see, because this isn't just a hospital, and this patient 307 is not just a woman. This happens to be the Twilight Zone. And Miss Janet Tyler, with you, is about to enter it. Yeah, that's uh, from the second season, Eye of the Beholder from the Twilight Zone. That's probably one of my uh, favorites of the Twilight Zone episodes. Uh, I've got, you know, a good dozen or so that are really at, up the top of my list for uh, for classic uh, Twilight Zone episodes, ones that I really enjoy. And Eye of the Beholder is definitely on that list. This one is, it, it, it's really a great tale. I'm not going to say too much and, like I said, give too much away on it, but I love the message of this episode. Uh, it's uh, it's set main, mainly in a hospital, a woman's in bandages uh, that are covering her face. It, it, it's really well done. This one was written by uh, Rod. This one was written by Rod Serling, uh, again from the second season. And if you've never seen Eye the Beholder from the Twilight Zone, you definitely deserve uh, to, deserve uh, to treat yourself and, and watch this episode because it's a classic. Now, the next episode is from uh, early in the series. This one is from the first season, also written by Rod Serling. It's called Time Enough at Last, and it stars Burgess Meredith as uh, a guy that works at a bank but uh, who loves to read. He loves to read books, and I, I can really identify with that because I'm, I'm a big reader. I love to read, and uh, I just this is another uh, another episode I really enjoy. And let me play a, uh, a clip from Time Enough at Last with Burgess Meredith from the first season of The Twilight Zone. Yes, sir. I wonder if I might see you in my office, Mr. Bemis. Why, certainly, Mr. Carswell. Uh, I don't suppose you've ever read David Copperfield, have you? No, Mr. Bemis, I have not. Now, if you'll be good enough to accompany me. Witness Mr. Henry Bemis, a charter member in the fraternity of dreamers. A bookish little man whose passion is the printed page, but who is conspired against by a bank president and a wife and a world full of tongue cluckers and the unrelenting hands of a clock. But in just a moment, Mr. Bemis will enter a world without bank presidents, or wives, or clocks, or anything else. He'll have a world all to himself, without anyone. Yeah, I like Henry Bemis. It's, uh, it's a great story, uh... Uh, Burgess Meredith does a great job as a, as a little bookworm guy that all he wants to be is kind of left alone to read his uh, books that he loves. Great story uh, from The Twilight Zone. The next episode, I'm going to play a, a short clip. Uh, this, again, is uh, it'll be showing or playing uh, Rod's uh, uh, narration introduction. This episode is called A Quality of Mercy. This is from the third season of The Twilight Zone. And this is sort of a war tale. Uh, a lot of it uh, based on... Uh, you know, Rod, like I said, was in the Army. He was in the Philippines. This one was written by Rod Serling. And it's sort of a, a twist on uh, the enemy. You know, if, if you could see see your, you know, your what you're doing if you're in a war from the enemy's point of view kind of tale. Uh, really interesting stuff, I think. Uh, Dean Stockwell is in this, uh, along with a very small role by Leonard Nimoy in this episode. So here we go with uh, A Quality of Mercy, uh, a short audio clip. Here you go. 
It's August 1945. The last grimy pages of a dirty, torn book of war. The place is the Philippine Islands. The men are what's left of a platoon of American infantry whose dulled and tired eyes set deep in dulled and tired faces can now look toward a miracle. That moment when the nightmare appears to be coming to an end. But they've got one more battle to fight. And in a moment, we'll observe that battle. August 1945, Philippine Islands. But in reality, it's high noon in the Twilight Zone. Like I was saying earlier, uh, you know, a lot of these episodes dealt with issues and things that were important to Rod Serling. And the next episode I wanted to uh, mention here, this one's called The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. This is from uh, early, this is uh, early in the series, the first season, written by Rod Serling again. And it, it's about a quiet little neighborhood that uh, that becomes, well, it, it just becomes out of control due to them thinking that aliens are invading it. Uh, I'm not going to give, again, too much away. Uh, this is a great tale of sort of hysteria and panic and how, how it can set into an area where people that used to be friends with each other can, can sort of turn on each other real quickly and it, it's uh, I find this one a, a really interesting episode on the uh, uh, sort of human condition I guess kind of thing so let me play uh, a little clip from this episode Maple Street USA late summer a tree-lined little world of front porch gliders barbecues the laughter of children and the bell of an ice cream vendor At the sound of the roar and the flash of light, it will be precisely 6.43 p.m. on Maple Street. What was that, a meteor? Yeah, that's what it looked like. I didn't hear any crash, though, did you? No, I didn't hear anything except a roar. Dave, what was that? I guess it was a meteor, honey. Came awful close, didn't it? Too close for my money. Much too close. This is Maple Street on a late Saturday afternoon. Maple Street, in the last calm and reflective moment before the monsters came. Okay, moving along. Got a couple episodes left that I wanted to mention, and then we'll just kind of wrap up our take on the Twilight Zone. Uh, but before then, then this next uh, next uh, tale that I would like to talk about, again, this is one of my favorites from the Twilight Zone. This episode is called To Serve Man. It's from the third season of the Twilight Zone, Written again by Rod Serling, uh, although it was based on a short story uh, called To Serve Man by Damon Knight. This is basically a tale of uh, these big tall aliens show up on Earth. Uh, they, they offer all these uh, things to the, to the humans, and they, it's one of these uh, kind of like uh, maybe they're a little too good, a little too nice. Anyway, I've got a, I got a couple of audio clips I want to play from this episode. And uh, we'll uh, come back after those. So here they are. This is the way nightmares begin, or perhaps end. Very simple, direct, unadorned. Incredible, 
and yet so terribly real that even while they're happening, we live with them and digest them and assimilate them. And if it's 12 o'clock noon, that's what you preoccupy yourself with. You don't think about 12 o'clock noon on the next day or the day after that. But that's what we should have been thinking about tomorrow and the day after tomorrow. We were preoccupied with the hands on a clock when we should have been checking off a calendar. Respectfully submitted for your perusal, a canimate. Height a little over nine feet. Weight in the neighborhood of 350 pounds. Origin unknown. Motives? Therein hangs the tale. For in just a moment, we're going to ask you to shake hands figuratively with a Christopher Columbus from another galaxy and another time. This is The Twilight Zone. Ah, I love, uh, I love that episode, To Serve Man. Probably has one of the... Uh... Uh, most uh, intense punchlines or twists at the very end of the episode uh, of of many of the Twilight Zone episodes ever had. So definitely a classic, uh, a classic tale. Uh, the the last uh, episode I just want to mention briefly. And now keep in mind uh, for everyone out there listening, I just grabbed a sort of a random sampling of episodes to play for you. Some of them are my favorite. Some of them I just wanted to mention. But this is by no means a complete list. They they did. Uh, you know, five seasons of the original series. There's, they're all really, really amazing episodes. Uh, there's really very few and far between to, that that aren't uh, worth watching. Uh, and uh, there is also a definitive DVD collection out of the Twilight Zone right now, which is uh, something I need to pick up. I have several of these uh, recorded on old videotape, but I was kind of holding off until they had a complete collection available, and that is available now, which you can buy online. Um, not really trying to pitch it, just saying uh, if you haven't seen these, it's it's cool to be able to do that or be able to have that available. The last episode that I wanted to spotlight is another one of my favorites. Uh, this one's called The Good Life. It's uh, a, a good episode. I've got a couple of audio clips uh, from it. I'll play for you now, and then I'll come back and, and just kind of talk about it for a second. Go ahead, Anthony. You'll think bad thoughts about me. Maybe some man in this room, some man with a gut, somebody who's so sick to death of living in this kind of place and willing to take a chance, sneak up behind you and lay something heavy across your skull. You're a bad man. You're a very bad man. And you keep thinking bad thoughts about me. Uh, another another classic Twilight Zone episode. It's a Good Life, uh, starring uh, Billy Mooney is in that, uh, who was Will Robinson on the old Lost in Space TV show. This one's written by uh, Richard McDonough and Rod Serling from the third season of the Twilight Zone. Uh, okay, a few uh, last comments on uh, this look at the Twilight Zone. Uh, first, uh, one thing I didn't mention until now, uh, this was a 30-minute show, almost a perfect 30-minute uh, television series, but in the fourth season of this, this show, they decided to make it an hour long, and uh, this, this uh, for a variety of reasons, I guess, but Rod Serling really wasn't in, in favor of this idea. He thought they had a perfect half-hour show, and I think it kind of shows the fourth season episodes are not quite uh, as tight and as, as good as the rest of the series, I've, in my opinion. There's still some good ones in there. 
but it 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 really was a was a perfect thirty minute show. Once they went to an hour, I think they had to expand things. They really didn't need to do in order to get the message across. So that happened in the fourth season of, of the show. But in, when they came back for the fifth season, they knocked it back to uh, thirty minute long episodes. So I wanted to mention that. And as as probably a lot of people out there uh, are well aware of, the Twilight Zone was uh, also. There was also a later series, a series in the 80s and even one a couple of years ago. I've lost track of how many times they sort of tried to revive The Twilight Zone, at least two or three additional times. The Twilight Zone that they did back in the 80s, I felt they did a pretty good job with, but I didn't really want to, didn't have time and didn't really want to get into that series here. They did also a Twilight Zone movie, which had some interesting things in it, which I thought I would just mention briefly. Uh, but overall, uh, a classic fantasy sci-fi TV series from the early 1960s. Rod Serling, great writer, uh, just an amazing series. Uh, one that I think will uh, will go on forever in reruns and, and people will appreciate for, for years and years to come. The th- what I thought I would sort of wind up the talk with uh, is there's a uh, about a nine-minute interview. Uh, this is only part of the interview. with. Uh, this is an old interview just... Uh, back uh, in the early, uh, late 50s, early 60s, just when the Twilight Zone was getting started. This is an interview with Mike Wallace and Rod Serling discussing his views on, on writing and censorship. I think it really shows how intelligent and how much integrity that Rod has. Uh, just want to say that this interview is out there, the video of it. Uh, there's a couple of parts. It's on YouTube. Uh, so just search for, like, Rod Serling interview, and you should be able to find it. But this is the first part. It's about nine minutes long, but I think it's very interesting, and you get to hear some things from, from Rod's own mouth about uh, his views on things, and, and it just really comes through how, how, how smart a guy this that he was and uh, how much integrity he had. So listen to the interview, then I'll come back, and we'll uh, wrap up the show. This is Mike Wallace with another television interview in our gallery of colorful people. In television drama, few names have the prestige of that of our guest. Ron Serling is the only writer to have won three Emmy Awards for Requiem for a Heavyweight, Patterns, The Comedian. We'll talk to him about censorship in television, his fight to say what he believes, and we'll learn what he means by the price tag that hangs on success. Way back in 1951, when television was just a baby, a young man sat in the Cincinnati diner with his wife and came to a momentous decision. He decided to give up the security of his job and take a chance in becoming a freelance television writer. Rod, first of all, let me ask you this. What was it that brought that decision about? Was it a burning desire to write because you felt that you had to say something, or was it just a way to make more money? The combination of many things, Mike. The immediate motive at the time, the prodding thing that pushed me into it, was that I'd been writing for a Cincinnati television station as a staff writer, uh-huh. which is a particularly dreamless occupation, composed of doing commercials, even making up uh, uh, letters of, uh, what do they call it, uh, to plug a product. Somebody has used it. Testimonial? Testimonial yeah. letters. Uh, there, I, as I recall, there was a, uh, a drug, a liquid drug on the market at the time that uh, could cure everything from arthritis to a fractured pelvis. And I actually had to write testimonial letters. And on that particular day, I just had it. 
And though I had been freelancing concurrent with the staff job, the best year I'd ever had, I think we netted about $700, which is hardly even grocery money. Yeah. And that one night, we just decided to, you know, sink or swim and go into it. So you went, you came here to New York? Uh, not immediately. We stayed on six months, I guess, in Ohio, then came to New York. Uh, started principally in Lux Video Theater, then live in half hour emanating from New York. I did 11 shows for them, and I was sort of on my way from I that see. point on. And what kind of stuff did you write? Because you said that it wasn't just the money, it was something that you wanted to say that you weren't getting a chance to say in Cincinnati. Well, in those days, uh, Lux Video, as one show, was doing reasonably adult stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, these, of course, were not Playhouse 90s, nor were they award-winning shows, but they were reasonably mature things that even today stand up pretty well. And uh, I was doing Lux Video, Craft Theater. The early so-called pioneer days of television, which of course are hardly pioneer, but anything over eight years old is pioneer style in television. You've come a long way since those early days, and perhaps more than any other writer, your name has figured in the classic battle of the, that is television writer, uh, the battle of the writer to be his own man. What happens when a writer like yourself writes something that he really believes in for television? I'm not sure I understand the question, Mike. What happens, you mean, in terms of... Well, we hear a lot about censorship of the writer on TV. We oh, hear a good deal about it in your own case, especially. Well, depending, of course, on the thematic treatment you're using, if you have the temerity to try to dramatize a theme that involves any particular social controversy currently extant, then you're in deep trouble. For instance? Uh, a racial theme, for example. My the case in point, I think, uh, a show I did for the Steel Hour some years ago, three years ago, called Noon on Doomsday, yeah. which was uh, a story which purported to tell what was the aftermath of the alleged kidnapping in Mississippi of the Till Boy, yeah. the young Chicago Negro. And I wrote the script using black and white uh, initially. Then it was changed uh, to suggest an unnamed foreigner. Then the locale was moved from the south to, the, to New England. And I'm convinced they'd have gone up to Alaska or the North Pole if and using Eskimos as a possible minority, except I suppose the costume problem was of sufficient severity not to attempt it. But it became a lukewarm, vitiated, emasculated kind of show. You went along with it? All the way. I protested. I went down fighting, as most television writers do, yeah. thinking in a strange, oblique, philosophical way that better say something than nothing. In this particular show, though, by the time they had finished taking Coca-Cola bottles off the set because the sponsor claimed that this had southern connotations, suggesting to what depth they went to make this a clean, antiseptically, rigidly uh, acceptable show. Uh, why, it bore no relationship at all to what we had purported to say in initially. Patty Chayefsky has talked about the insidious influence of what he calls pre-censorship. How does that work? Uh, Pre-censorship is a practice, I think, of most television writers. I can't speak for all of them. This is the prior knowledge of the writer of those areas which are difficult to try to get through. And so a writer will shy away from writing those things which he knows he's going to have trouble with on a sponsorial or an agency level. We practice it all the time. We just do not write those themes which, you know are going, which we know are going to get into trouble. Who's the culprit? Is it the network, the sponsor? It sure is not the FCC. No, it's certainly not the FCC, ideally speaking, of course. It's a combination of culprits in this case, Mike. It's partly network. It's principally agency and sponsor. In many ways, I think it's the audience themselves. How do you mean? Well, I'll give you an example. About a year ago, 
roughly 11 or 12 months ago on the Lassie Show. This is a story usually told by Sheldon Leonard, who was then associated with the show. Lassie was having puppies. And I have two little girls, then age five and three, who are greatly enamored of this beautiful collie. Mm -hmm. And they watched the show with great interest. And Lassie gave birth to puppies. And Mike, it was probably one of the most tasteful and delightful and warm things uh, depicting what is this, this, this wondrous thing that is birth. And after the show, I, I think there were many congratulations all around because it was a lovely show. The sort of thing I'd love my kids to watch to show them what is the birth process and how marvelous it is. They got many, many cards and letters. Sample card from the Deep South, this was. If I wanted my kids to watch sex shows, I wouldn't have had them turn on that. I could take them to burlesque shows. And as a result of the influx of mail, many of the cards, incidentally, as Sheldon tells it, were postmarked at identical moments, all in the same handwriting, but each was counted as a singular piece of mail. And as a result, the directive went down that there would be no shows having anything to do with puppies, that is, in the actual birth process. Well, obviously, it is this wild, lunatic fringe of letter writers that, that greatly affect what the sponsor has in mind. You can understand the position of the sponsor, can't I, you? In, in many ways, I suppose I can. He's there to push a product. He has a considerable stake, thus, in what goes on the air. Most assuredly. And in those cases uh, where, we, where, there, where there is a, a problem of, of, of public taste, in which there is a concern for, for uh, eliciting negative response from a large mass of people, I can understand why the guys are frightened. Sure. I don't understand, Mike, for example, other evidences and instances of, of intrusion by sponsors. For example, on Playhouse 90, not a year ago, a lovely show called Judgment at Nuremberg. Uh, I think probably one of the most competently done and artistically done pieces that 90's done all year. In it, as you recall, uh, mention was made of gas chambers. Yeah. And the line was deleted, cut off the, cut off the, cut off the uh, soundtrack. And uh, it, it mattered little to these guys that the gas involved in concentration camps was cyanide, which bore no resemblance, physical or otherwise, to, to the gas used in stove, they cut the line. Because the sponsor was... He did not want that awful association made between what was the horror and the misery of Nazi Germany with the nice, chrome, wonderfully antiseptically clean, beautiful kitchen appliances that they were selling. Yeah. Now, this is an, is an example of sponsor interference, which is so beyond logic and which is so beyond taste. This I rebel against. You've got a new series coming up called The Twilight Zone. You are writing as well as acting ex executive producer on this one. Who controls the final product? You are the sponsor. We have what I think, at least uh, theoretically anyway, because it hasn't really been put into practice yet, a good working relationship. We're in questions of taste, in questions of the art form itself, in questions of drama. I'm the judge, because this is my medium and I understand it. I'm a dramatist for television. This is the area I know. I've been trained for it. I've worked for it for 12, in it for 12 years. And the sponsor knows his product, but he doesn't know mine. So when it comes to the commercials, I leave that up to him. When it comes to the story content, he leaves it up to me. Has nothing. Well, I hope you enjoyed that uh, interview with Rod and that Mike Wallace did uh, a long while back. I thought it was uh, it was real interesting to give you a perspective on what Rod was really like. Uh, and his views on censorship, I, I, I think that was real, uh, real interesting to to listen to, and and I hope you enjoy the look at the Twilight Zone. Uh, it, it's difficult, you know, to know what to pull out and talk about in a in a short uh, hour long podcast or or part of the hour I did on the Twilight Zone. But I, I hope I gave everyone a good feel for things, maybe brought up a few things you didn't know about, 
And uh, maybe I got some people excited about going and checking out The Twilight Zone, maybe if you haven't really watched it much in the past. Uh, the the last thing I would like to wrap up with on this week's uh, edition of the show is uh, there were uh, – this will be sort of a collectible segment related to The Twilight Zone. Sideshow Toys, uh, a couple of years back, a few years ago, uh, probably about three years now, two, three years, they did a line of Twilight Zone toys, uh, collectible figures mainly. Uh, I've got four of them, which I'll have some pictures up in the collection gallery. Uh, these were were really neat the way they did these. Uh, they did them on some of the classic episodes. There's the Canamit from uh, To Serve Man that I've got. There's a, a Gremlin uh, from the Nightmare in 20, 000, at 20,000 Feet. There's the uh, Invader, which I didn't really talk about that episode because there wasn't a lot of dialogue uh, in the episode, but it's a little uh, sort of a uh, mechanical man looking in a suit. Uh, it's it's difficult to describe what it looks like without telling you too much about the episode, but that's from the episode The Invaders. And there's the Doctor and Nurse uh, from uh, the Eye of the Beholder episode. So some classic episodes uh, done by Sideshow Toys in, in action figure kind of uh, cases and boxes. They did a real nice job with these. Packaging was really nice. Uh, really captured the, uh, the these characters very well. I'll, like I said, there will be some pictures up online on the collection gallery that you can take a look at these. And I think you can still find these. Uh, you might even be able to find some at SideshowToys.com. Or look on eBay, that kind of place, those kind of places. But um, they they haven't really done a lot of Twilight Zone collectibles, I don't think, uh, a lot of them over the years. But this line I thought was pretty neat. I don't think they're really making any more of these anymore uh, currently, but uh, the ones they did make I really enjoyed. And I think that's just about to, going to do it for this week's podcast. Uh, I hope uh, it was enjoyable. And I'm sorry again that I had a little delay for a day or so due to my illness. I'm slowly feeling better, I think, now. But I will uh, be uh, coming out with a podcast next weekend. Uh, I'll try to get it out just a little early since Christmas is, is going to be, uh, well, a week from today. So uh, it'll probably come out, well, it'll probably come out on Sunday. I'll try to get it done uh, early Christmas Eve. Uh, you know, that'll be next Sunday, the 24th. And I hope everyone's in, you know, having a great time doing your Christmas shopping and all that kind of thing. And uh, until then, this is Rico signing off for this week. Talk to everyone again soon. Bye bye for now. This has been a Rick Dosty production. This podcast, copyright 2006, all rights reserved.